Today we are going to be thinking about some things that are unconventional. I read about something a few weeks ago and it kind of stuck with me and I, I thought I'd share it with you because it's kind of in that realm. Now you know what the polar plunge is, right? That's where people who are otherwise sane, they go in the middle of winter and they cut a hole in the ice and then they jump in this freezing lake, right? You know what that is. Then they get out and, and they're like, oh, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> they're lying. They're lying. It's bad. In fact, I'm wondering, if, have any of you ever taken the polar plunge? Any of you? All right. A few of you have done that. Yeah, like I said, people that only seem sane, seem sane, you know, take the polar plunge. All right. Well, the reason that came to my mind specifically within this context is because what the article was about, it was talking about the fact that people are now bringing essentially the polar plunge into the workplace. What's happening is that execs are now meeting together with people and having ice bath business meetings. And it's just what it sounds like. Just what it sounds like. There are some, the New York Times was reporting on this. It said that there are some specially equipped places where you can go and you get in your ice bath and, and the other person gets in their ice bath and you conduct business right there. That, that's, what it, that's what it is. They say they like to do it because it puts them in a better mood. Would that put you in a better mood to be sitting in an, in an ice bath? I've even heard, or the article was saying, that some, some employers are actually doing employment interviews, like hiring interviews right there in the ice baths. Can you really get a job that way? To me, it kind of sounds like a hiring freeze, right? Don't you think? Yeah, okay, well, okay, maybe you don't think so. But anyway, so unconventional is, I think, definitely what we could call ice bath business meetings. Definitely unconventional. And if you think that's unconventional, actually what we really need to do is open up the text that is before us because what we're going to see today is something that most definitely is outside of anything that you would expect. And that's what unconventional things are, right? They're outside of things that you would expect are going to happen. And that's what we're gonna see in a few different passages. It's one main passage, but there's three different scenarios that happen. And the place you can find it is Mark chapter one. We're continuing on in our Mark Sermon series. Welcome, everybody. Glad that you're here. Welcome to those of you listening online, those in the Classic Venue and on the Moon Campus. Good to have all of us together as we dig into this, continuing on in our series called Follow Through the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse 40 is where we're starting today, and we're going to go on into chapter 2 today as well. In today's passage, we're going to see Jesus getting down to just the nitty-gritty of ministry with some people. And we're going to see him engage them in ways that are definitely unconventional. Now, it's just not, as we think about that which is unconventional, and that's what we're calling this message today, the unconventional way, we're not just looking at what Jesus is doing and saying, well, he's really unconventional, though he is really unconventional. And we'll see that over and over in, this, in these texts. But also, there are some things that are required of us, response to Jesus being unconventional that actually I believe in the world in which we live today, even in the church context oftentimes, is going to seem unconventional in our response. So we're gonna dig into that and see what this passage has to say to us in that regard. And there are a few different features of the unconventional way that we see through Jesus, and the first of those is this, that it serves the undesirable. The unconventional way serves 
the undesirable. If you remember from last week, Jesus made Capernaum, that city on the, that town on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus decided this is gonna be his home base. It was the largest city in the region. He decided he was going to minister basically from there in terms of a home base. Now, his intention was, and we saw last week, that he was gonna go out from that place to other places, and we saw last week that he starts off into other villages and towns so that he might proclaim the gospel message actually throughout Galilee. And he's out doing that, and verse 40 tells us about him showing up in one place. Take a look at it. Mark writes, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Now, let's stop there for just a moment, because if we don't understand the nature of leprosy, especially in the first century, you're not going to get this story. Now today we don't talk a lot about leprosy. It's not a big deal in our world today. We have drugs and things that can heal people who fall into that sort of circumstance and disease. But that's not the way that it was in the first century. In the first century, there was hardly anything that was more dreaded than being a leper. Here's the way it's described, first century leprosy. It's a contagious disease that affects the skin, mucous membranes, and nerves, causing discoloration and lumps on the skin, leading to disfigurement and deformities. Nodules on the skin grow larger and larger, ulcerate, and from them come a foul discharge. The eyebrows fall out and the eyes become fixed. Slowly the sufferer becomes a mass of ulcerated growths. The average course of the disease is nine years and ends in mental decay, coma, and ultimately death. That's what your essential death sentence was if you were a leper in those days. Now, in Jesus' day, a leper was required, because of all of that, to stay away from everybody else. You had to live somewhere else outside of town. You didn't just get quarantined in your own house. You had to wear special clothing so that if you were walking around, people could see from a distance that you were a leper so that they could stay away from you. In fact, if, if somebody wasn't paying that much attention, but you saw them and you were the leper, you were responsible to call out, unclean, unclean. If you think the physical issues were bad, just think of the social stigma that goes along with this. And this is what lepers dealt with in those days. If anybody saw you coming, they would move quickly in the other direction. Everyone that is, except Jesus. Except Jesus. Jesus showed a special compassion for the lepers. Look at verse 41. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will, in other words, it is my will, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. While everybody else was backing away, Jesus reaches out and touches the leper, something that nobody would do, risking actually contracting the disease himself in the process, but that's really not much on his mind or much of his concern at all. His concern is to meet the need of this man. It was unconventional, unconventional, but Jesus serves the undesirable. Time and time again, we find Jesus loving the unloving, uh, the unlovely and spending time with those that other people would shun. And that's something that we should focus in on. It's something we should hold on to because, friends, there are times when we feel unlovely also, isn't there? 
Times when we find ourselves in a place where it seems like nobody else cares or nobody else is really concerned or that we feel shunned or we feel pushed away or we feel pigeonholed or we feel as though other people really don't care. But whenever you find yourself in such a circumstance, what you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt is that if nobody else seems to, you can know that Jesus does. That Jesus loves whatever your circumstance, whatever warts it might look like you have, whatever disease you are struggling through, however worthless you might feel, Jesus is there. Now, I love the faith of this leper. He doesn't have any doubt whatsoever that Jesus can heal him if Jesus wants to. In fact, he says, you saw it, if you will, you can make me clean. And it gives him the courage to break all of those rules and come and approach Jesus. He doesn't know exactly what Jesus is going to do, but he knows this is his only hope. And so he takes the risk. And as a result, Jesus does something unconventional and turns his life around. What comes next also seems unconventional. You would think that it would be in Jesus' best interest for news of this to spread everywhere. Jesus is able to heal. Jesus healed me, but that's not what Jesus wants. Look at verse 43. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus wants him to remain quiet about the whole thing other than to go to the priest and, and show himself to the priest because what that would allow is that it's not only going to pronounce him physically clean but spiritually, ceremonially clean also, which means that he can now come back into town. He could come back and be with his family after all of this time of separation. This is important. Just imagine if you had some disease that would keep you away from being able to interact at all with your family. Now we tasted just a little bit of that with COVID when you couldn't go and visit your family that was in the hospital or have your big weddings with family or funerals or graduations. We tasted a little bit, but that's not what this leper is going through. It is so much more, it is so much more severe. Imagine not being able to engage with or have anybody ever touch you. You couldn't hug your family. That would be absolutely excruciating. And that's what this leper is going through until Jesus until Jesus. Needless to say, the healed man was elated, no doubt about that, so elated in fact that he disregarded what Jesus told him to do, verse 35. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now, in many ways, it's not that difficult to understand what the man does. I mean, he's just been cured of leprosy. This is a big deal. He's excited. He wants to share it. And he's happy to tell it to everybody. He knows what Jesus said, but nonetheless, I mean, this is great stuff. Certainly, people will think great of Jesus if they hear my story. He thinks he's doing a good thing. 
But in the end, it's kind of different than he imagines. Now, you've been there too, right? You've done something that you thought was going to be a blessing to someone, that was going to make somebody happy, and at the end of the day, it just kind of backfires. It turns in the other direction. You've been there, right? Carolyn, my wife, is one who absolutely loves fresh flowers. She loves to have them on the table at home. She loves bouquets of them and just having them around. It's just, it's a wonderful thing. And so my kids, my two girls, they picked up on that right away, even when they were very, very young. So there'd be times we'd go off to the store and and I'd buy some flowers and I'd give them to the girls to give to mom and and they would. And of course, Carolyn would make a big, big deal out of the gift that the kids had given to her. And that that was awesome. So naturally, they learned that giving Carolyn flowers was a good thing until the day that our oldest, who was maybe four at the time, she came home with the, or in the door with a bouquet of flowers. Only this time, I hadn't bought the flowers for her to give to mom. And so Carolyn says, where did you get the, where did you get the flowers, honey? Turns out, she picked them from the neighbor's flower bed. She thought that she was doing a wonderful thing. Turns out the neighbors didn't agree that it was such a wonderful thing after all. Well, this former leper probably thought that he was doing a good thing, but ultimately what it does is it limits Jesus' ability to move around. What's happened here essentially is that Jesus and the leper have traded places because the text tells us that Jesus can't move around freely anymore and he's actually staying out in desolate places while the lepers now in town with family going wherever he wants to go. But in the grand scheme, it actually just tells us more of who Jesus is. It's just a microcosm of what Jesus ultimately came to do because Jesus came to trade places. Jesus provided blessing in circumstances where there was curse brought on him. Jesus doesn't retaliate in circumstances where people have lived out all sorts of evil toward him. And ultimately, of course, Jesus trades his righteousness for our unrighteousness when he goes to the cross. Nobody else does that sort of thing. It's unconventional. And we see it in Jesus as he serves the undesirable That's not all that he does. We also see in the unconventional way that it does the unimaginable. It does the unimaginable. As we turn the page to chapter 2, we see one of these unimaginable situations start to unfold. Look at it, beginning verse 1, chapter 2. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Remember what we said? Capernaum's his home base, and the text just said he came home to Capernaum. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. People are still crowding in to see Jesus. Now they're in a house. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Quick background. Homes in those days were typically single story. And they had flat roofs. 
and they had stairs that went up the outside of the house up onto the roof and they'd use it like a patio or, or those sorts of things. And that's what the setting is right here. And so these men come with this friend of theirs and they want to get in to see Jesus but the place is just way too crowded and so they go up on the roof and they start to remove the roof. The roof basically would have been like big logs that ran parallel in one direction with sticks going the other way kind of making a bit of a lattice work and then they put mud and clay or maybe some sort of plaster mixture on there so that it would kind of keep the rain from falling inside of the house. That's, that's the setting. So they get there, they can't get inside, so they go up on the roof and they start to dig through the roof to open it up so that they can let this man down through the roof to where Jesus is. No doubt there would have been a shower of all kinds of debris coming down if you were inside, but these guys didn't care. It was that important to them that they would get this guy, their friend, to Jesus. And if you have to admire their actions and what they're going after here with this guy. They acted in unconventional ways themselves in order to get their friend to Jesus. No doubt they were hoping that Jesus would heal this guy's physical body. That's why they've come. They have seen Jesus do this. They've heard all of the news about it. They've got a friend who's really in need, so let's go get Jesus to heal him like he's healed everybody else. That's what their desire is, and, and so they let him down through the roof. But we don't read that Jesus healed him. We read that Jesus forgave his sin. That's how Jesus responds in this story. Now, multiple times in Mark's gospel already, we've seen this tension between physical needs and spiritual needs. Physical needs and spiritual needs, right? Just last week, we looked in it that Jesus was out praying and the disciples come and they find him and they're like, Jesus, you've got to come back into town because there's all kinds of people who need you to heal them. And Jesus said, we're not going back to town essentially said they're only dealing with physical needs. There are people elsewhere in Galilee who are dealing with spiritual needs that are even more significant. And we're going to go to them. We're going to preach to them so that they can experience what their soul ultimately needs. Jesus didn't want to just become some sort of circus sideshow or circus act where people would just come and see the magic magician who heals people. He didn't just want to be that. That's not why he came. And so when this paralytic comes to him, his friends wanting them to, to heal him, he does heal him spiritually, forgives his sin. Now, I don't know if Jesus was looking for a reaction, but he certainly got one, and not from the paralytic, verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they, were, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. 
Up until now, everybody just seems to be riding the wave of Jesus' popularity and the momentum of it all and, and healing and casting out demons and this is all, everybody's just kind of doing, just coming along with it until now. Now we have that anti-group that is going to step in. Verse six tells us about these scribes. Scribes are basically experts in the law. They're ones who knew the law very well and they don't like what Jesus is doing. They're like, only God can forgive sin. It says that right in the scriptures and you ought to know that. And actually they're right about that. That is what it says, only God can forgive sin. What they're missing is that Jesus has come to earth as God, as the promised Messiah. They're blind to all of that. And so this begins basically the seeds of what is gonna continue to fester over the next couple of years where they get more and more angry with Jesus because they're jealous. They're jealous of his authority, they're jealous of his ability, and they're going to be looking for ways to get rid of him once and for all all the way up to the cross. And Mark tells us that Jesus sees right into their hearts and he knew their attitudes. He knows what they're thinking. What they're thinking is, that's nothing. I mean, sure, you say that his sins are forgiven, but we can't see whether or not his sins are forgiven. Anybody can just say that. It doesn't mean anything at all. And Jesus knows what they're thinking. And they're, they're kind of right when it comes to it, right? I mean, you can say just any, I could walk out and say, I'm able to eat 25 hot dogs in two minutes. I'm not saying I can keep them down, but I can eat 25 in two minutes. And you'd be like, yeah, I'm not so sure that I really believe. But what if I brought out 25 hot dogs and I ate them right in front of you? I'd probably repulse you in the process, but I'd back up the claim that I was making, right? By proving that I can do what I say that I can do, something that you can visibly see. And Jesus knows what's going on here. So basically he says, let me prove to you that I can do this. Not that Jesus always did that or always felt a need to do that, but in this case he says, let me show you. He says, what's easier, to just say this or to actually heal this guy? And so what Jesus does to prove that he has the power to forgive is he tells the man to get up, to pick up his mat and to go. And that's what he does proving, demonstrating that Jesus has the power to do what he says he is going to do. And they say, we've never seen anything like this before. Now, what was it they'd never seen before? We kind of have, we sort of imagine, well, he's talking about the fact that he healed this guy, told him to just get up and walk off, and he does. We've never seen anything, uh, haven't they? They're in Capernaum. Jesus' hometown, Jesus has spent a lot of time there already healing people, casting out demons. They've seen him do before what he just did. What they haven't seen him do before is look into the heart of men. They haven't seen him know what's going on in your heart and in your mind and in your life, to recognize the needs that are present and then to do something about them. I think that's what's actually different that they're really stunned about in this context. Do you believe that Jesus knows your need? Do you believe that Jesus can see into your heart? 
and recognize the need and, and do something about it? There's absolutely no doubt. Jesus desires to meet us in our need, especially as we come to him in, as, in faith as, as the leper does. And as these men and the paralytic do. It's beautiful. Now, I can't tell you exactly how he's going to meet that need, but he will do it according to his purposes, which is always going to be in our best interest. Jesus responds here in a way that is completely unconventional. We've never seen anything like this before. It's unconventional. The unconventional way, what he does is he does the unimaginable. And there's one more way we see it also here with Jesus, the unconventional way, and that is that it engages the unacceptable. New scenario, verse 13, Mark is going to take us on a little walk so that we get to meet some people, get introduced to some, some people here that a lot of people considered to be unacceptable. Verse 13, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. There's our theme yet again. And he rose and followed him. Now, it was one thing for Jesus to call fishermen to follow him. There wouldn't have been a lot of people who would have been too upset that he calls you know, or thought it to be really odd that he calls Peter or Andrew or James or John. But Levi is a different story because Levi is a tax collector. Now, we've talked about this before, so I'm not going to belabor it, but, but tax collectors were despised in that culture. They were hated in part because this would have been a Jewish man who's collecting taxes from his fellow countrymen, from other Jewish people, and he's doing it for the Romans, which nobody liked anyway. So he's working on behalf of the enemy, essentially. And on top of that, he's telling them that they owe more than they really do, and he's just lining his own pockets. Tax collectors were just lining their own pockets with all of those things that they took as extra from others. And so people hated them. They were social outcasts, and no self-respecting person would have anything to do with them. In fact, Jewish literature lumps tax collectors together with thieves and murderers and people who root for the eagles in the Super Bowl. That's right. That's right. They do. And despite all of that, Jesus sees potential in Levi, whom we also know as Matthew. And Matthew begins to follow Jesus. This should not really surprise us because Jesus specializes in taking things that look worthless and doing something beautiful with them. My very favorite sculpture is Michelangelo's Pieta. It's a very sorrowful sort of scene, of course. It's very somber, yet it's also very profound in many, many ways. It's also just a, a, a beautiful demonstration of tremendous skill on the part of Michelangelo who carved it. But here's the thing. 
The block of marble that it was carved out of was rejected over and over by many different sculptors as not being something that they would ever want to use. They saw it essentially as being worthless. But Michelangelo, in his artistic eye, could see Mary holding her then dead son just come out of the marble. And the result is one of the greatest masterpieces of all time. He saw something beautiful could come out of that which looked worthless. And that's essentially what Jesus sees in Matthew. There are people who just look on on Matthew, this tax collector, and think, he's just unacceptable. There's nothing there of any redeeming quality. But what Jesus sees is one who could be his disciple. What Jesus sees is one who could be the author of one of the Gospels that we have in the New Testament. Jesus wasn't concerned about what other people thought of his choice. He knew the choice was right. And on top of that, Jesus seems to like the fact that it stirred some people in what they thought because he seems to like to hang out in some of those environments. Look at verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes, the Pharisees, when they saw him, that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This appears to be a farewell dinner that Matthew is throwing for some of his friends and other tax collectors because he's quitting the job now. He's going somewhere else, and so he's saying farewell, essentially. And he also wants to introduce them to this guy who's captured his attention, this guy, Jesus. And so this would have been quite a collection of people at this dinner. I mean, you've got the tax collectors. You've got other sinners, which essentially is everybody other than the Pharisees who thought themselves not sinners. You've got the social outcasts of the day. They're probably there. And so some of these are followers of Jesus, it says in verse 15. And they're having a good old time, and who should walk by but the scribes. And when they see Jesus, there he is in the midst of them all, and it looks like he's having a good time, and Jesus is showing dignity and respect to these people. And the Pharisees just don't get it. And they say to some of the other disciples who are on the outside, they said, what's up with this guy? Why does he do this kind of stuff? Doesn't he know that these people are unacceptable? that these people should just be shunned? And Jesus knows what they're thinking and saying, and he simply responds, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. That is, I didn't come to call those who just think they're righteous, like you, who are above having any need whatsoever. I came to call those who might respond. Of course we know Jesus came for everyone but he's calling the Pharisees out in, in what he's saying here. Because they, in their self-righteousness, 
thought that they were going the right way. They were confident that they were going the right way when really they're going the wrong way. Many years ago, there was a football game played between the San Francisco 49ers and the Minnesota Vikings many years ago. And it's an interesting story, and I was going to just tell you the story, but I thought, this is Super Bowl weekend. Why don't I just show you? So take a look. Myra straight back to pass, looking. Now stops, throws, completes it to Kilmer up at the 30-yard line. Kilmer driving for the first down, loses the football. It's picked up by Jim Marshall, who's running the wrong way. Marshall is running the wrong way, and he's running it into the end zone the wrong way. <laughs> Jim Marshall was confident he was doing the right thing, but he was doing the wrong thing. And so it is with the scribes. Now, just as an aside, you know that the Minnesota Vikings that Jim Marshall played for, you know that that's Pastor John's favorite team. And I know he would love it if you would just mention that to him before you go today, okay? Don't let him down. All right, be sure to bring it up before you go, if you would, please. And the more people who do so, the more encouraged I'm sure he'll be. So please, please do so. All right, now being convinced that you're right, like he was, like the Pharisees were, being convinced you're right doesn't make you right. And this is obvious here. The self-righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees blinded them to seeing what was going on in their own hearts. So Jesus had some very targeted words for them. And the targeted words he has for them are the same words he would have for us. Because we live our lives right on the precipice of falling into this same trap. Of looking at people around us who live differently than we do or worship differently than we do or vote differently or look different than you do and judge them and reject them out of hand. That's a temptation that is on all of us every day. We consider them unacceptable. Jesus points out that attitude and the reason he has no time for it is because it reeks of hypocrisy and because it's standing in the way of the message of the gospel. Wherever it happens. Jesus was willing to engage with anyone in need of the gospel and it took him to places like Matthew's house. Now, Mark will make it very clear to us as this goes on. We're gonna see this a lot more. But he makes it clear that Jesus never ever went soft on sin. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that we do either. But he was sure to not allow those who were unacceptable to keep him from entering into an environment where he has the opportunity to minister the gospel to them. He never thought them beyond being able to respond to the love of God. And we must not either whether we would ever say such a thing with our lips or just think it in our minds. This is the call on our life like it was on Jesus. We need to reject the self-righteousness that looks down on anyone as being beyond deserving grace. And we need to challenge ourselves in our own minds and our own hearts 
with those that we see around us, that sometimes it can be so easy to dismiss. Because what's going on here is that to follow Jesus is to engage the unacceptable with the love of Jesus and to share the life that he came to provide. And at times that's going to require that you would get outside of your comfort zone. In fact, that's a pretty good test. If your engagement with the gospel never takes you to a place where you find it uncomfortable, you're probably not doing it right. Or at least you're not taking it to the extent that God has called you to go and take it. Now, in no way am I suggesting that, okay, well, then, then we all should just walk into places that are going to tempt us and, and lead us into sin, to walk into places that put us in compromising positions. I'm not saying that. But I am saying there are plenty of other places where we can engage, just like Matthew's house, where we have the opportunity to minister the love of Jesus. Instead of standing back and taking on the perspective of the Pharisees, which has been a real temptation for churches down through the years. And as a result, there's a division that exists today that wouldn't need to have the chasm it does if only we would have been walking into the gap, serving and meeting needs and ministering the gospel instead of being willing to dismiss all of these people whoever they are, whatever their sin, doesn't matter, as those who are unacceptable. Jesus steps into it, and he calls us to do the same. What does that require of you? Who does that require you to speak to? Where does that require that you would go not to put yourself in a weakened position, but to minister the gospel. I pray that we would serve with the intentionality that our unconventional Jesus does. And it's going to feel unconventional because you're going to be able to point to a lot of other people, a lot of other believers who are like, they would never come here. They would never do this. They would never talk to this person. But if genuinely in your heart it's about the gospel, I'm convinced that God is going to use your faithfulness to lead other people to Jesus. I know I called you last week to some CPR praying. This is a beautiful way to take and use that. I hope that you've been doing that this week. This is a beautiful thing to incorporate into those prayers. That you confess any area where you perhaps have been taking on an attitude that needs to be put aside. You'd praise Jesus for the opportunity to engage with others and that you would offer your request asking God to open up an opportunity you might step through to minister the gospel. Let us live our lives inspired by the unconventional Jesus and just see if it doesn't accomplish some things moving forward that we've never seen in the past. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Jesus, one that just catches us up short because there are times that we have not been willing 
to respond as he responds. There are times, if we are honest, that we have fallen off that precipice or we've intentionally stepped off it to judge and to reject, to believe that these are some people that really I don't feel any obligation to. There was no one that Jesus did not feel an obligation to. So Lord, I pray that you would open up our minds and our hearts, open up our perspective that we might walk into circumstances where the gospel is desperately needed so that you can be glorified and so that others can be led into fellowship with you, we pray. Give us the courage, give us the boldness to live unconventional lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.